Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... Though there might be these wonderful plans and these great ideas that you promise to shareholders, the reality often ends up being a little bit more complicated, and sometimes it can be the complete opposite of what that initial plan might have been. Amy Keene on what makes a good deal. Hey everyone, welcome to a special edition of The New Bazaar. Our very own Amy Keene, my business partner at Bazaar Audio and the executive producer of The New Bazaar, is now hosting her own podcast. That podcast is called The Closer, and it's produced by the excellent folks over at Project Brazen. And the show is all about deals and deal making. And I'm not just talking about mergers and acquisitions, but other kinds of deals too how they come together, how they sometimes fall apart. And it's about the psychology that goes into deal making. And most of all, it's about the big lingering effects that some deals end up having for years and decades after they've been made. Effects not just on the people and the companies that actually made the deals, but on all of us, on the economy, on society. It's a really, really great show, and we're super proud to be playing an episode from it today on the New Bazaar feed. Today's episode is from season one of the show, which has already started, and which you can subscribe to on all the podcast apps. And it's the story of when Facebook bought WhatsApp, how that deal changed both companies, and what the deal ended up revealing about the ways that we all communicate with each other. Here it is. One day in 2010, Niraj Arora was trying to locate an office building. This little dinky office. He was in Mountain View, California, home to some of the world's biggest tech companies. But unlike the sprawling corporate campuses throughout Silicon Valley, this office he was looking for was tucked away in a building it shared with another company. So I go in to a conference room, which was not really a conference room. It had no like ceiling. So people outside could hear what we are talking about. So I was like a little surprised. Surprise, because this was the headquarters of an impressive new messaging app that Neeraj was scoping out. He worked in M&A and corporate development at Google, and it was his job to find promising new companies that the tech giant might want to acquire. And in all of his travels to startups in the Bay Area, he wasn't used to seeing such a drabby office. There was no fridge with, like, fancy snacks. There was no, like, colorful sofas. None of that shit was there. It, it felt like a trucking company's office. Like, I kid you not, it was the weirdest startup office that I'd seen by then. The startup, WhatsApp. An instant messaging app that was changing the way people texted with friends and family around the world. And it already had millions of users. I had never heard of them. Uh, I did not know who the founders were. I had to look it up. So he looked up the company, sent a few messages trying to get in touch with the co-founders, and eventually got the invitation to meet with them at their humble office in Mountain View. We sit down and we talked about close to 45 minutes an hour. This was a meeting with the co-founders, Brian Acton and Jan Kuhn. And Jan hardly spoke a word. Kuhn was also CEO. He can come off as a very intimidating character. Brian did most of the talking, and we asked them a little bit about what their vision is. Their vision for the seemingly small startup was this. The goal was to build a cross-platform, very simple messaging app that does a lot better than what SMS is capable of doing. And also be inexpensive because it uses your data or Wi-Fi to operate. It was an intriguing concept, but Niraj was especially taken with Acton and Coombe. These two guys are completely different. One, they were complete engineers. They had no interest in building a company or a business. They were so focused on building a utility that they did not care about anything else. Now, the focus on building a product that serves a lot of people across the globe was so clear. They came across as very genuine, down-to-earth, serious want to stay away from the hype of the valley. There was nothing about them on the website. They never talked about themselves. They just wanted their product to go out and serve the users. And it was so refreshing and so different from anything else I had seen in the valley. 
I almost didn't believe it, like that they are sitting here in Mountain View. Niraj's next move, he made them an offer to join Google. The offer price went up from 10, 12 million as the first offer to 100 million as the last offer. They declined all those offers. Acton and Coombe told Neeraj they didn't want to be part of a big company again. They'd already been longtime employees at Yahoo before they started WhatsApp. They told him, We love Google, but no thank you. Once again, Neeraj was taken aback. To reject that at that time was, for me, surprising. And also, my respect for them went up like 10 notches. Wow, like these guys are something else. I have not seen something like this before. When I met them, I just fell in love with what they were doing. At this point, he had to make a decision. He knew he wanted to be part of whatever Acton and Coombe were building, but he couldn't seem to bring them into the Google fold. Then, a kind of wild idea. What about, rather than trying to bring them in, he jumped ship and joined them instead? He spent the next several months pitching himself to the co-founders. Part of his pitch was that he'd take care of the operations so that the two of them could focus on engineering, on building out the product itself. And in 2011, the year after he stepped into the WhatsApp office for the first time, Neeraj left Google to join them. There were no meetings. There was no chit-chat. It was like, just go to work, get your shit done, and go back. And I think once I was past six months, I think I was fine. I think I was able to uh, build that trust with them. I think they liked me. And I was like, okay, great. Like, this is it. And then the rest is history. History that unfolded over 12 years, where Neeraj became a critical member of the WhatsApp executive team. In 2014, I was the chief business officer of WhatsApp. An app that today serves billions of users all over the world. And I helped negotiate the 22 billion sale to Facebook. A sale that still ranks as the largest ever purchase of a company backed by venture capital. And today I regret it. On this episode, how Facebook acquired WhatsApp, as told by the app's former chief business officer, Neeraj Arora. Why he regrets the sale today, and how all of it affects how our privacy is handled online. This is The Closer, the inside story of the deals that changed the world. I'm Amy Keene. We'll be back after the break. WhatsApp was a different kind of Silicon Valley startup from the beginning. One thing that I think is important to say is WhatsApp wasn't just like a company for these guys. It was like a mission. This is Kirsten Grind. She's an enterprise reporter for The Wall Street Journal. They really wanted to bring free messaging and privacy to the people. That was really what they were trying to do. And they were succeeding. Acton and Coombe founded the company in 2009 and by 2012 had over 100 million users. Part of the success came from the fact that at the time, people text messaging over SMS were charged for cellular use, whereas WhatsApp relied on an internet connection. It was also more effective at sending messages with photos and videos. And so it was really this like huge deal and just had such big adoption. The founders of WhatsApp decided early on that privacy was core to WhatsApp as a product and as a company. Jan had a really interesting background. He grew up in Ukraine, and because of that, was just very nervous about privacy in general, had grown up in a communist country with secret police where your communications are watched. And both of them had this experience at Yahoo where they saw how it just ruined, in their opinions, the user experience when these big display ads were adopted. So they decided, we're not going to do ads, and privacy is key. This meant that something called encryption was a central feature of the app. WhatsApp users could send a message that was scrambled or encrypted, and then decrypted only by the recipient, which kept those messages secure. Years later, WhatsApp would take its privacy promises a step further. It provided something called end-to-end encryption, which meant not even WhatsApp server could see what was being sent on the platform. So that was their big thing. Privacy, no ads. The company was backed by just one big venture capital firm, Sequoia Capital. It was well known as one of these big players in Silicon Valley, 
but they were the only investor in WhatsApp, which was really unusual. There was a Sequoia partner named Jim Getz who actually helped Neeraj land the role at WhatsApp. According to Neeraj, Getz wanted a so-called business guy in the mix, but Acton and Coombe kept saying no to the people he sent their way. Since the co-founders were taking a liking to Neeraj, Getz was ready to make it happen. He said, no, just tell me what you want. I'll get it done for you. Shortly after Neeraj officially started working at WhatsApp, one of the biggest names in Silicon Valley came knocking. There were multiple approaches which were not direct, they were indirect, and they were more like, oh, I'm doing this deal, uh, I'm working on a big deal, it's billions of dollars, but I would rather work with you guys if you're interested. I know you're not, but let us know. It was Mark Zuckerberg. He would talk to Jan once in a while to stay in touch, and he would do all these, you know, funny tactics to to, to really understand whether we are really interested or not, and we just, just kept on ignoring him. Facebook was on a roll at this point. It had gone public in a much-anticipated IPO. It splashed out a billion dollars to buy Instagram. And yet, the WhatsApp crew wasn't interested in the social network's advances. But then, a couple things happened. One, WhatsApp came out with its user numbers, 400 million monthly active users as of December 2013. First time, we said we are bigger than Twitter. Everybody was like, what the hell is this company? Two, Facebook revamped its own Messenger app. They actually took Messenger off the main app and made it like starting to look more like us. But they were struggling because WhatsApp was like just too deep and the network effects were strong. We were becoming an existential threat to Facebook. An existential threat, perhaps as well as some Silicon Valley competition. Forbes reported at the time that Zuckerberg had caught wind that WhatsApp was set to meet with Google, a potential rival buyer. So executives at Facebook quickly put together an offer for a deal they'd been trying to make happen for two years. That is when I think they finally made a big move. They finally came and said, look, this time things are different. This was February 2014. And this time around, Facebook offered more of a partnership than a straightforward takeover. You can stay independent. You can do whatever you want. We'll not force you to change anything in the product or make you monetize anything. Jan can join the board. And they dangled a figure. The first number was around $12 billion. Zuck was really charming. He was like, look, I, I want to make the biggest deal of my life, right? This is huge. We love what you guys are doing. And together, we can really do well. There was a lot about Zuckerberg's latest approach that felt different than the earlier ones to Neeraj, Acton, and Coombe. They were intrigued, but not quite ready to go all in. After several days of going back and forth over what the partnership would look like, they still hadn't landed on the right price. It was a pretty big decision uh, on both sides. And we were just consumed with, like, Are we doing the right thing? If we're doing the right thing, how do we do it? Coombe went over to Zuckerberg's house where they eventually got to a number, $19 billion. That same night, Coombe called Neeraj over to Zuckerberg's place to celebrate. Yes, I think he knew that Jan's favorite whiskey was Blue Label, so he had a bottle ready. But Neeraj did not want to drink, just a toast. It just got back and started thinking about how do we start working on this thing. Facebook and WhatsApp got their legal teams ready to sort out the finer points of the deal. And they set up shop at WhatsApp's lawyers' offices to get things going. The social network proposed an exclusivity period, but WhatsApp declined. Neeraj and his team wanted to make sure everyone was working quickly to get a deal done. The talks went fairly smoothly, except for one big point of contention, the breakup fee. This is the fee an acquiring company promises to pay the target company if the deal doesn't go through, say, for regulatory reasons. That was the big sticking point that we we were not able to agree on, and which took maybe, I would say, a few hours of, of back and forth and yelling to sort out. Basically, between me and the head of corporate on the other side, in a room. But it was my job and, and the guy who was on the other side, their job to, to make sure that we, we get to some sort of an agreement. If we don't get to a number that we are happy with, we are very happy to just walk away from this thing. 
ready to walk away from the entire deal if they couldn't agree on the right number for the breakup fee. But they eventually got to it, a billion dollars. With that big sticking point out of the way, there were a few more days and nights of folks on both sides negotiating the details and drawing up the deal documents. Most of the time, Yar and Bright were there, but they wouldn't get some sleep at night and then come back early in the morning. Zach was there pretty much most of the time, and he would go back and come, come in again. And then, in less than a week, the deal was complete. Facebook is making a major move into mobile this morning. The social media behemoth is buying the messaging company WhatsApp. Facebook will pay $19 billion. As you heard, Facebook has bought the mobile messaging service WhatsApp for $19 billion in cash. Acton, along with his partner, are now newly minted billionaires after Facebook paid $19 billion for their messaging service WhatsApp. Yeah, I think it is a very emotional day because in the end, Jan had to sign on the line, right? That uh, we agreed to everything and this is final. It was surreal. At that time, there really weren't big acquisitions like this. This is Kirsten Grind again. So Facebook, two years earlier, had bought Instagram for $1 billion. And at that time, 2012, that was a massive deal. So when the Facebook WhatsApp deal was announced for $19 billion, it was mind-blowing. The deal would end up closing near $22 billion because of the rise in Facebook's share price. And it was the largest and continues to be the largest venture-backed deal, backed only by one venture capital firm, Sequoia. So it was just, you know, astronomical. So when the acquisition happened, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg promised a fairly hands-off approach to both WhatsApp co-founders. What changed? What happened was two things. First of all, WhatsApp, already extremely popular, grew even more popular. So in a couple years after the acquisition, around 2016, it topped a billion users. And then at the same time, Facebook, for a variety of reasons, was its own growth was slowing. So here are two things Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg the CEO at the time we're looking at, right? So there started to be pressure from the Facebook executives on the WhatsApp team to actually make money off this product. Mm -hmm. And just to step back for a second, I mean, Facebook and WhatsApp, they were really different companies. Can you just give us a sense of what was so different between these two companies? They literally... They literally could not be more different. (laughs) So Facebook's, the way it operates is based on using data to monetize its products, right? WhatsApp was completely opposite. So when the picture starts to shift for Zuckerberg and Sandberg, they're saying, okay, this company we acquired a few years ago has had explosive user growth. Meanwhile, growth at our core business is slowing down. So what do they want to do with WhatsApp? So they basically wanted to (laughs) loosen the bedrock of WhatsApp. They wanted them to kind of loosen their stance on privacy. I'm not saying Facebook was like, we want to suck up all this user data and use it, you know, in the wrong way, but they wanted to probably be able to target ads to WhatsApp users, right? Basically, the worst thing that could be pitched to Jan and Brian. Remember what Facebook promised back when the deal was verbally agreed? As we reported at the Journal several years ago, in their contract, when Facebook had purchased WhatsApp, they actually got the company to agree to a clause that said, if you ever try and put ads in WhatsApp, like we can leave and take our money, basically. So they were like, this is not happening. Something else became important to Facebook executives. Facebook was like, you need to move to our campus. The campus was a whole different vibe than that small, understated WhatsApp office Neeraj first met Acton and Kumin years earlier. The Facebook campus is like Disneyland. 
it's very overwhelming. There's shops and, you know, ice cream and laundry and all of this. And that was just not what the WhatsApp people were used to. And you'll remember what the WhatsApp people were used to. There were no meetings. There was no chit chat. There was no fridge with like fancy snacks. None of that shit was there. So with the physical move of WhatsApp to Facebook's campus came a series of clashes over company culture. So as you can imagine, like when there's a really big issue, the really small issues start cropping up too. For example, WhatsApp's office was kind of in a crowded area where people would walk by. So they like put up a sign saying, please be quiet or something like that. And then of course, all the Facebook employees were sort of like, oh, WhatsApp, like WhatsApp, shut up. You know, just this very like catty stuff. And then another issue that emerged was over like WhatsApp's bathroom stalls, which they had, you could argue, better bathrooms because the doors reached all the way to the floor. And yeah, so the privacy Facebook, everywhere. <laughs> yes, even in the bathroom, exactly. So the Facebook people were like, why do they have better bathrooms? And they had bigger desks. And, you know, Jan was even like quibbling with Mark Zuckerberg about the chairs. And it just turned into this very like, you know, not a happy environment. Meanwhile, Facebook executives were still focused on monetization. Cheryl's team started becoming a little impatient about, okay, I, I think we, sh- we need to be a little bit more in control of how this thing scales on the, the business side, right? I think they had grown Facebook and, and Instagram, obviously, into such a big advertising product that they were, they, it was difficult for them to think about something else, right? For them, a user was a user, and you could put a dollar value to that user. But this wasn't quite how WhatsApp thought about it. It's by now more than a billion users. These guys were just so worried about that mucking up the user experience. And then it's like a slippery slope, right? Because if you're going to serve a user ads, you want them to be good ads, right? So then for them to be good ads, you need more user data. So that's loosening the privacy pillar that they were so staunchly in favor of. So... To get more data, they're going to have to lose some of that encryption that they work so hard for. You really can't get into it without going all the way, if that makes sense. So I'm sure they saw that writing on the wall. Uh, We were like, okay, this is not something which we signed up for. Encryption, which had made WhatsApp such a groundbreaking app in its early days which its users had requested and loved, and which was a core value to the company itself. For the WhatsApp team, encryption was non-negotiable. There was a lot of talk about, you know, do we really stand by our users' privacy that that we promised to our users? Brian was the first one. He said, I'm done, I'm leaving. We'll be right back. WhatsApp co-founder Brian Acton left Facebook at the end of 2017. This was following pressure from the company's executives to monetize the messaging app. And in doing so, he left an enormous amount of money that he could have collected on the table, about $900 million. So our sourcing told us back then, Brian, while all this discussion was going on with the ads, he decided to go back and look at his contract. And in the contract, right, it said if they're going to put ads in WhatsApp, then he's allowed to get his money faster. And so he tried to enforce that according to our sources. And Facebook was basically like stonewalling, like threatened legal action. And he already had made, at that time, he was worth about $3 billion, I believe we reported. And he just decided to leave. What can you tell us about what ultimately made him decide it was time to go? Listen, these guys are billionaires. You know, Jan at that time was worth about $9 billion. So he didn't really have to stick around. Not really. That seems like an astronomical amount of money to normal people, but to executives who are already billionaires, you know, maybe it's it's not worth going against your mission to collect that money. A few months later, in March 2018, 
The data firm Cambridge Analytica was able to access the private information of 50 million Facebook users without their permission. Mark Zuckerberg, CEO of Facebook's parent company, Meta, will join other tech executives to face a deposition over the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Investigation amid word it may have mishandled data. The information was later used by Cambridge Analytica, a consultant to the Trump campaign. Cambridge Analytica. It's the name of the now defunct political consulting firm and a scandal that rocked Facebook. The firm managed to obtain data from close to 87 million Facebook users without their consent, later selling that data to politicians. And as details of the breach came out, an online movement to hashtag delete Facebook grew. And one of the people that posted was Brian Acton. And it was a huge deal when he got on Twitter and posted delete Facebook, because that was sort of like, wow, actually one of their own is encouraging people to delete Facebook. To come out publicly and tweet like this, that, that was a part was shocking. Not that he said what he said, but that, that, that he actually took a stance in public. Then in April of that year, Coombe stepped down. He also was very frustrated with where the discussions were going. He, in fact, also was on Facebook's board. So his departure was even, you know, bigger of a deal, you could argue. These two engineers had built the most popular messaging app in the world, sold it to Facebook for a record amount, and became billionaires in the process. Now, they were walking away. Do you think they were naive in any way, just given the price tag that Facebook paid for them, you know, despite the promises made, you know, as Facebook was courting them? I mean, we certainly thought a lot about that. And analysts have said, like, guys, like you agreed to this purchase by Facebook, which is clearly this giant tech company that cares about making money. So, Yes, you could definitely look at the situation and say, were these guys naive to be sold to a company like that? But on the other hand, they knew that. They were eyes wide open, and that's why they demanded all this stuff, including in their contract, from these guys so that they could remain separate. What what did you glean from watching the aftermath of this deal? This was like the first deal that really showed kind of what Facebook is after. And I mean, I don't say that to fault Facebook. They're not a nonprofit. They're a business. They're a business, a publicly traded business that needs to make money. And so it's funny to look back on those early days of when the sale happened in 2014. There was definitely this innocence about tech and about Facebook. And that definitely played a part in opening the eyes, I believe, of consumers to to that ecosystem. Acton left Facebook and later joined Signal, where he's now the executive chairman and interim CEO, Signal being the encrypted privacy-first messaging platform that's run as a nonprofit. Coombe, on the other hand? Jan has been a little bit more MIA. Um, When he left, he said he was going to go collect Porsches and do things like that. And then he made headlines last year for making sizable political donations in the U.S. midterm elections. As for Neeraj, he left Facebook at the end of 2018. He co-founded a new social app called Hollow with user privacy in mind. And in launching the company, he had something of a big tweet himself. It read, In 2014, I was the chief business officer of WhatsApp, and I helped negotiate the $22 billion sale to Facebook. Today, I regret it. His post went on to explain what went wrong from his point of view. Neeraj, what motivated you to make this post? All the issues that were coming out of the Facebook camp just kept on increasing after that. Cambridge Analytica was the first big one, but I think there was, I think, a lot more that came out. The misinformation piece, the the hate speech piece, the election interference, those things just kept going on and on and on. And the realization that I had was all these years, last 20 years or so, we built all these phenomenal products that serve so many users across the globe. Have we lost the plot, right? Obviously, we've done really well. We've built these amazing products, keep people connected, serves a need. But 
in this rush to get to these users and build these amazing companies and monetize, we've actually lost the the values of how a business should be built and what it does for the users and how it keeps its promises. And eventually it became very clear to me that, you know, we have to take a stance at some point. But it's also a good time that we talk about, you know, what happened, how it could have been different. Do you think the fallout from this deal will have any effect on how we communicate online, how how we think about privacy? People are waking up to it. The government's waking up to it. We've seen the effects of it over the years. And, you know, I'm not against advertising. The goal is that you can now build a social product without the need of actually compromising your users' privacy and data and selling it to, to the advertisers, right? Uh, it's, it's not about, you know, killing the advertising industry or anything. In your post, you spoke of this perverse business model of growth and monetization that comes at the expense of users. What do you think the solution is for online communication and, and social media? We have come a long way where you can actually build subscription businesses. Right? There are enough examples of Netflix and Dropbox and a bunch of other apps that have said, look, we want to have a direct relationship with our users. We'll give them value and they'll pay for it, right? People care about their privacy. They understand how these apps work, what they do for them, what data do they use and how. So it's sort of like a movement. It's a change in the, I, I call it an EV moment of the social world. The electric vehicle moment of our world where you've been used to using the gas engines forever and then Elon comes around and says, okay, I'm going to build Tesla and most of the cars in the future will be electric. So it's sort of like, taking a different stance and saying, okay, we've been used to something, it works, but now we have to do it better and different. My last question for you, Niraj, you sit in a very, I think, special position with a very special perch over there in the Bay Area, looking at the future of technology and our, our communication. What should we be worried about, about what's sort of coming down the track or, or what you're thinking about and the problems you're trying to solve? There's this belief here that all the things that we do are great and we are always right and we don't have to really be responsible. I think it's a good time for tech to say, okay, obviously we are, we do very important things, but that doesn't mean that you don't take responsibility of, of what happens after the products get used by so many people. So whether it is AI, that is the next big thing that everybody is, is you know talking about and working on. Every frontier that we have been working on and we continue to work on, it has to be with a lot of responsibility towards the user and the effects of it. For me, that is the biggest learning and that's, I think, something which we should push more and more for everywhere. That has to be the biggest change, I think, and it is happening like because it, it, it is going to only get better, I think, from here. Okay, everybody, Cardiff here again. We are back on the new bazaar. Yes, we are. Right? Yeah, and I'm here with <laughs> closer host Amy Keene. Hi, Cardiff. <laughs> What's going on? Good to be here. Congrats on the new show, first of all. Thank you, thank it's you. Excellent. Thank you. And it looks like you're having a lot of fun with it, too. Yeah, it's um, truly just a great gig. I mean, deal stories are just the best dramatic narratives. You've got huge personalities, high stakes, whether it's jobs or just the financial value of a deal. Um, and then you just have people acting like people, revenge, betrayal, all kinds of, of really exciting stuff. And also some of the less darker sides of the human personality, right? Yes, there are of also some psychology. really beautiful moments in these stories as well, <laughs> I have to say that. But yeah, no, getting to work with the team at Project Brazen, our production team, and some really wonderful guests, both journalists and closers themselves. It's been really a lot of fun. All right. Well, let's talk about some of those episodes and some of the themes that we've come across in season one of The Closer. I want to start with the episode that we just heard, Facebook and WhatsApp. Mm -hmm. Something that I was thinking as I was listening to it was like, what motivates the buyer in a deal? What motivates one company to want to buy another? And you'd think that there's all these strategic considerations, and there are. Obviously, there's a lot of people crunching numbers and whatnot. But actually, in the case of Facebook and WhatsApp, as I came to learn, 
there was just a bit of like high school FOMO yes. going on. Like the psychology of deal making is sometimes a lot more basic, a lot more simple than what you sort of envision when all these, you know, all these deals are coming together and all this money is changing hands. Yeah. Yeah. So Mark Zuckerberg, chief executive of Facebook, made a couple of approaches to WhatsApp, which I think is is pretty common in deal making, especially big deals where chief executive, maybe a chief business officer will reach out to someone from a potential target company and say, you know, what What are you guys looking to do? Yeah, what are you interested in? Tease it out a little bit, sort of draw them out, that kind of thing. Sure. Exactly. And the reaction could be any number of things. But in the case of WhatsApp, the co-founder said, we're not interested. Thanks, but no thanks. And I think for the most part, you know, Mark Zuckerberg left them alone, but he'd kind of come back every now and then and just kind of test the waters. But we learned over the course of working on this episode that that sort of final approach that Facebook made early 2014 came likely because Facebook got wind of the fact that Google was interested and that Google was talking to WhatsApp. And so to your point, we think about these massive deals. This one was 19 billion. It closed at 22 billion dollars given the the share price of Facebook stock. It's a Mm -hmm. huge deal. We think of these as being many months of consideration, long strategic reports thinking about how these two companies are going to come together. But ultimately what forced Facebook's final move and its ability to move really quickly to make this offer to the WhatsApp co-founders was a little bit of a sense of like, there's no chance we can wait and let Google take this company. We've got to make our move now. We cannot miss out. Yeah. A little bit of rivalrous envy going on there. Yeah. And Facebook and Google. And I think at least I've, I've come to see in a number of deals in of this era and in, in Silicon Valley is that there just is a lot of that. It's actually like a relatively small group of people who between the bankers and the executives. And so you just do get that that old school FOMO. Yeah. OK, so so much for Facebook and WhatsApp. Uh, I want to talk about some other themes uh, that you hit on in season one, um, both to entice our listeners to go subscribe to The Closer. Thank you. Um, but also just because I think there's like so many different kinds of deals that you cover and there's a bunch of different lessons we can learn. Right. The first one I wanted to ask you about was about the idea that these deals are, at least in theory, supposed to be mutually beneficial. Right. That like one company sees something in another company. And so if it wants to buy that other company and they were to come together, then the new entity would be better than each of the other two companies existing on their own. Right. They sometimes refer to things like efficiencies or synergies or whatever other business speak you want to use. Doesn't always work out that way, does it? No. And I mean, I think to make a point that runs counter what we were just talking about, the fear of missing out, there are a lot of very serious considerations that any company, any executive actually makes when when making an approach for another company. And there is, in the case of of a company like 3G Capital, which took over Heinz and later Kraft, you know, there are um, whole armies of rather business analysts who are figuring out exactly what like the long term effect of this deal might be. But then there's reality. And there are things like pandemics that change an entire business strategy. There's the reality of what it means to come in and try to bring a new management team to a a different business. And so, yes, though there might be these wonderful plans and these great ideas that you promise to shareholders, the reality often ends up being a little bit more complicated. And sometimes it can be the complete opposite of what that initial plan might have been. Yeah. One of the episodes is about... um we work mm-hmm. and specifically that one's about a deal that did not happen and i don't want to like give away the whole thing just yet but like basically that was a deal that didn't happen between two sides that had done a deal before so masayoshi's son of softbank had invested previously in we work of course one of their biggest investors if not their biggest i'm not sure and then there was another possible deal for him to invest more it didn't happen there's no guarantees in this business that just because you've done a deal with someone before that they're going to like you again. Yeah. Yeah. This would have been uh, the biggest buyout of a startup ever. Yeah. Biggest, uh, yeah, biggest buyout of a startup ever. And uh, to quote Elliot Cohen, who we had on the show from The Wall Street Journal, who literally wrote the book with Maureen Farrell on this deal, he said the fact that it almost happened is what is so astonishing about this story. To walk it back a little bit. Masayoshi-san was a really important figure in the WeWork story. And I think one of the things that's so interesting about the way we were able to cover this and speaking with Maureen and Elliot about their book is that Adam Newman is the face, of course. And he, in all of the sort of popular stories about WeWork, the books, the TV show, the documentary, you hear about Adam Newman and you should. 
But this story allowed us to get into the man behind Adam Newman, if you will, the man who invested in him, Masayoshi-san, and the man who encouraged Adam to think even bigger, to be even crazier, to use some people's words. And this deal that they were going to piece together to be a, ultimately a buyout of WeWork was a deal where they were just putting these just unbelievable figures next to what they thought they could do, trillions of dollars in company valuation, taking over the entire global real estate market, just astonishing objectives. Uh, and so again, to go back to, to what our guest Elliot Cohen said, the fact that it almost happened is the piece that is so incredible about this story. And so yes, Adam and Masasan had this long working relationship. SoftBank and Masasan invested in WeWork a number of times. And then this ultimate deal, which was going to be the equivalent of a $20 billion investment, just didn't happen. There was a whole set of dominoes that fell that ultimately led to the deal falling apart. But yeah, the it didn't happen. And um, I think that's what's really interesting when you look at deal stories is looking at the ones that didn't happen, the ones that almost happened, you can find some really interesting stories too. The other thing that I'm interested in is something that we just heard in the episode that we just played, which is that sometimes when a bigger company is buying a smaller company, yes, of course, they're buying the product that that smaller company makes. But in some sense, they're also bringing in-house the talent that's at that smaller company, You know, their way of doing things, their, their ability to manage the fact that they have institutional knowledge and everything. But actually, sometimes the managers of that smaller company after the merger end up leaving. It doesn't work out. And sometimes maybe it's because the bigger company is like, hey, we don't need you anymore. And frankly, you're in the way and we want to put in place our own rules and our own way of doing things. We paid for the company and so we can do whatever we want. But sometimes it's because the managers of that previously smaller entity just get frustrated with the way that bigger company operates. And so there's a really interesting tension there. And it seems to me like the default expectation at this point should be that the previous owners of that smaller company just won't be sticking around for for very long, maybe a few years if you're lucky. But I can't think of any instances where like the previous owners of the smaller company just were like there forever. And they're like, yeah, great. We'll just, you know, be in-house at this much bigger company forever. And that's fine. Yeah. And without speaking about any one co-founder in particular, because of course I can't get into their head that way. It's just a completely different kind of job. It's a completely different career path. You just built your own company that you've just sold for hundreds of millions of dollars, perhaps billions of dollars. And now you're a middle basically, manager, basically middle management right, yeah. at a big tech company. It's just a completely different game. Plus, you've just made millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars of your own that now financially, reputationally, walking away just isn't what it might seem like to you or me. I mean, the other thing to to think about is that, you know, often with these deals, the acquiring company asks management to stay on for a certain period of time, specifically when you're acquiring, say, a startup. You typically ask the executive team to stay on just to ensure a smooth transition to, as you say, actually make use of the talent that is part of that target company. Sometimes there does come some sort of clash or just a change in an in interest in, in what those executives want to be doing. Yeah. If you're now worth nine or even 10 figures, <laughs> yeah. it's easy to walk away from the grief, right? Yeah. You know, as proud as you are of your company and as much as you want to see it being run the right way by the new acquiring company, you're also worth a lot of money. And if it looks like you're losing battle after battle, you can walk away and you'll be fine and maybe even start another company and do something more fulfilling. Yeah, right? exactly. I mean, specifically in the case of Facebook and WhatsApp, there was a really serious clash between what Facebook and WhatsApp wanted to do with the messaging app. And both Jan Coombe and Brian Acton, the the co-founders, had made a ton of money in the sale. They felt that they were promised certain things in the acquisition about what would happen or how WhatsApp would be protected. And when they yeah, felt- like bathroom stalls that go all the way down to the floor. Which is obvious. I mean, how could you possibly, <laughs> how could you possibly stay at a company that doesn't have bathroom stalls down all the way to the floor? Privacy everywhere. Um, but uh, more seriously, um, Kirsten Grind, who is an investigative reporter at the Wall Street Journal, who we spoke to in that episode as well, made the point that what seems to you and me like just an astonishing amount of money to leave on the table, which is what both Acton and Coombe did as a result of leaving a little bit earlier than what was planned, the stakes are just completely different for someone in that position. And it's it's actually really difficult to sort of understand the psychology of it because it's a rare, rare experience. I'm also interested in the role of journalists mm-hmm. in deal making. 
There's a lot of journalists that you interview on The Closer, on the show, and they're all wonderful because they have, in many cases, like a really good grasp of everything that's happened because they've covered it for so long. They also are kind of able to assess like all sides of a deal as opposed to like when you just interview one side, it can be very interesting and very illuminating, but you are getting that just that one side. Mm -hmm. But journalists also play an active role sometimes, not intentionally necessarily, but in deals either coming together or as you covered in one of your episodes, not coming together because they traffic, of course, in information and in getting information out to the public and public sentiment can play a big role in what a deal ultimately looks like. Yeah. So the deal you're referring to there was the proposed or almost takeover um, of Unilever by the 3G-backed Kraft Heinz. We should say the 3G and Warren Buffett-backed Kraft Heinz. The guest we spoke to there was our former colleague, James Fontanella-Khan, who's the the deals reporter at the Financial Times. And disclosure, like a drinking buddy of ours, too. Yeah, like a very good friend. Not just our former colleague. Yes. Right. We like him. Exactly. Um, drinking buddy. That's funny. I don't think I've used that phrase in some time. Anyways, James and his and his great team at the FT had broke this story, um, I think it was spring of 2017, to say that this company, Kraft Heinz, which was had been made to, you know, pick up a consumer brand, clean up the operations, and then get ready to pick up another company. That was the 3G model for this particular set of companies. James got wind from his sources that they were making an approach for Unilever which had a completely different company culture and was a European company, which already made it have a different company culture. But I think what was sort of most interesting about this is that in James's reporting, he was able to reveal that it was more or less going to be a hostile bid. And when this news came out across the board, the response was, I think, you know, one of shock. You know, investors had a lot to say about it, but quite crucially, Warren Buffett had something to say about it, and ultimately the deal didn't go through. And so it's easy to think about these deals as just being, you know, one company over here is looking for company here. Can they make these synergies? Can they find efficiencies? And then can they get the financing? Can they get the funding? But in reality, there's a stage on which all of this is happening, and financial journalists in particular are the ones to kind of convey to the audience That audience can be any number of people, but to say exactly what could be going on, what the different sides are thinking. And I think something that's really interesting is that I've always enjoyed speaking to these journalists about is how they sit with the various information and motivations that their sources have. Maybe a banker is looking to kind of get a sense of how something might sit in the market. And so they sort of cede that idea to the journalist. Of course, that's a huge responsibility for the journalist to parse between how is this source perhaps trying to use me and my platform? And actually, like, can I stand this up as a newsworthy piece of information in and of itself? So to your yeah, to your point, the journalists play an incredible role and Getting to talk to them about a deal is so wonderful because they've talked to just about everybody involved. And so you can really get this full picture of how something came together. Something else I'm fascinated by, all right, the fact that deal making is a part of the economic landscape, I think exerts a subtle and often underappreciated pressure on the existing managers of companies. Hmm. By managers, by the way, I should say, we're talking about like the executives, yeah. the CEOs, et Management. Cetera. Exactly. <laughs> Management. Um, because you know that there's always a potential buyer out there, mm-hmm. right? Somebody who might be interested in buying your company, there's a kind of there's a kind of pressure to manage your company well. Because if it becomes obvious that a company is very badly managed, that there are, in fact, some real inefficiencies that can be driven out of the system, then you might be susceptible at some point to a buyer saying, we'll buy you guys out and we're going to run this place better, right? And maybe they will make at some point a hostile bid or maybe a shareholder, an activist shareholder will get involved and start trying to apply pressure on management to change the way they're doing things. And so I just think this is something that like we don't often think of, mm-hmm. Um But it is an important part of an economy that there is a kind of healthy deal-making environment. Not that every deal is great. A lot of deals are crap, right? A lot of deals are done with the wrong motivations, and a lot of deals are just executed quite poorly. But the fact that a healthy deal-making environment exists actually, I think, is net-net like a positive for the way companies are run and for the way, therefore, the economy functions. And I'm just wondering if you've thought of that. Yeah, it's an interesting point. It reminds me of... 
the U.S. Airways American Airlines deal, which is the deal we covered in our first episode. And U.S. Airways made its approach for American while American was in bankruptcy. The American management really wanted to be able to take the American executives, I should say, wanted to see the company through and out of bankruptcy and then get back to running it, you know, in the way they had had before. But U.S. Airways came in, had this opportunity to take it over. It was the better deal for shareholders and because it was in bankruptcy for the creditors. But then they got rid of just about everybody at the top of American. And so, you know, to your point about any executive running a company has in the back of their mind, at some point I could be the target. And if I'm the target, I might also be out of a job. Yeah. And so, um, yes, I totally agree with you that there is this sort of sense of, I guess, dynamism there. But there's also you always wonder about what you know motivations are encouraging an executive to do what they do. You want to give us a little teaser on uh, future episodes to come for The Closer or, or anything else that you've got planned? Yes. So all six episodes of the first season are out by the time people are listening to this. So yes. the most recent episode being about none other than David Bowie, actually, who uh, famously turned to the capital markets in the 90s to do some uh, some securitization with, with a banker named David Pullman, who we speak to in the episode. It's a really fun episode. Closes out our season. And we're already at work on season two. Excellent. I actually can't give away those deals right now because we're still working on them. But I will say in between seasons, we're going to be running a number of bonus episodes on the feed, reacting to deals in the news, Speaking to our wonderful producer, Ben Walsh, who's a financial journalist. Many people might know him from Econ Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, he writes a newsletter for The Closer, which people can find at thecloser.fm. And he and I, on our subscriber feed and we'll be doing on our main feed as well, um, we'll just be chatting about deals in the news between now and then as well. Excellent. Amy, thanks. Thank you. And that's our show for today. We'll put links to all the Closer episodes, along with some descriptions and where you can sign up for the Closer newsletter and all kinds of other information about the Closer at the show notes for this episode. The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio from me, an executive producer and Closer host, Amy Keene. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer, and our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you like today's show, leave us a review or tell a friend. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at bizarreaudio.com. And we'll see you next time. sounded like a Robert Harris novel for a second. And you're like, betrayal, <laughs> revenge, I know. ancient Rome, the assassination a very, of Julius Caesar. There's a very fine line between like selling it and being like, and everything is bad. <laughs> so thank you for uh, reeling me back. No, no, that was fun. That was fun.